Hey, this is singer-songwriter Danny Horovitz, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. So good to have you here. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Joining me, as he always is, is Curtis Hughes. Max, how's it going? Man, it's going pretty good, man. It's going pretty good. And for this episode, this is going to be a lot of fun for me personally because we get to talk to a fellow journalist, uh, not only a journalist, an award-winning sports reporter, a public speaker, founder of the One in Three Foundation, and now a writer. Well, technically she's been a writer for a long time, actually, but now she's a novel writer. Trust me, those are two very, very different things. Uh, Joining us to talk about her memoir, The Return Trip. This is going to be out on November 14th through Rising Action Publishing Collective. Maya Golden joins us. Maya, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for the opportunity to come on. Nice to meet you guys. Thank you. All right. So let's start with why write a book about your life? I've questioned that several times during this process. But, <laughs> uh, truthfully, I the work you mentioned, uh, the One in Three Foundation is a nonprofit organization here in Texas, and we work with survivors of sexual trauma who have little to no income and can't typically afford mental health care to see a counselor or a survivor. And through my work through that organization, I was realizing the more I shared my story with people, the more that I talked about it publicly, that uh, there was a response to it that was helpful to them, but also helpful to me. And also during my own healing journey and my recovery journey and path through mental health and recovery, I was really looking for a book that dealt with an honest depiction of the ramifications of sexual abuse. And I found a lot of self-help books and I found a lot of books uh, with a very specific demographic, but not something that painted a picture that I felt was truly the authentic experience that I was looking for. So I just decided to write the book that I was looking for and then also was inspired to do so because of that work with other survivors and uh, was encouraged to share the story even further. You mentioned other self-help books, and you're right, certainly tons of of them out there. Is your book meant to be a self-help, or is it supposed to be something different? It's meant to be something different. There's inspiration in it, but my goal is that someone picks this book up that is a survivor or a loved one, a family friend, uh, a cared one of someone who survived sexual trauma and is able to read the contents of this book and come away with understanding of the experience to understand the behaviors that go along with it. So they might say, oh, this person has, you know, these agitations or they show rage or they show addictive behaviors. What's the source of it? What's the reasoning for it? And if they're able to pick this book up and understand from my experience what they're seeing in their loved one, then that's really the goal is for it to be more of an inspiration and a tool to guide other people towards seeking help and recovery. Did it inspire you at all, either in the writing process or just kind of going over the experiences of your life? I think I had to keep coming back to my why I was writing the book. I think that was a very important thing for me was to to stop and say, as I'm telling this part of the story, what is my reasoning for picking this particular moment in time to share? Uh, It's never meant to necessarily demonize anyone in the book other than the perpetrators and the predators that I experienced the abuse from. Uh, and rightfully so, it's their fault, but it's it's 
done so in a way where I was selective about which topics we addressed and what would be helpful for someone else to read. No one particularly cares what, you know, oatmeal I ate when I was in the fifth grade before I went to school every morning. So I wanted to make sure that I was writing something that was direct and to the point and uh, getting inspiration and encouragement to the hands of the readers. Uh, the oatmeal question was actually on my list, so I'm going <laughs> to scratch that out. Okay, moving on. I'm a maple and brown sugar type of guy, sometimes an apple and cinnamon. Oh, there you go. Hey, me too. Me too. I like that. So this book, I'm guessing, is not just a like start-to-finish kind of story. Is there a focus on a particular point of your life? There are two, and thank you for asking that. That's a really great question because uh, the first part of the book, the book is broken up into three parts, and the first part of the book is really sort of a back and forth between a childhood event or a childhood trauma and then the manifestation of that in me as an adult. So when you read the first chapter, chapter one is in what was at the time, present day, that was actually 2014. Uh, And then the book jumps back to 1985 when I was five years old. Wow, that sounds very old to say that right now, but it jumps back to 1985. But then it's sort of a back and forth of that. It's showing me moving throughout life from age five back to being an adult in the present moment, back to, you know, maybe being maybe being 11 or 15 or 20 in college. And that was important for me to not necessarily tell it in a chronological way, but again, to show the trauma and the manifestation even decades later after the fact. So that's the first part of the book. And then the second part, focuses specifically on when I went to treatment. And I went to a facility called Shades of Hope here in Texas. And that all takes place, that part of the book is all set at that treatment facility and what I went through during what's called a six-day intensive uh, for trauma. And it is just that. It's six days of intense trauma therapy, no contact with the outside world in any way, shape, or form. You can only work on yourself and devote your thoughts to your healing journey. Okay, I'm really curious about intense therapy because I never thought those two kind of went together. I thought the whole point was to kind of relax you. What does intense therapy look like? First and foremost was it it's it was at a, a treatment facility that is technically uh, an inpatient facility. They have residents there, but they also do these shorter stays, which uh, can be six days or you can do a 42-day stay. With the sixth day, it is a concentrated effort to do what they call family of origin resculpting. So you really go back through journaling about your childhood, talking about your childhood experiences, the key players in your life. So maybe your care provider was your mom and dad, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was uh, a foster parent or maybe it was a grandparent, whoever those care providers were and your dynamics and how your relationship with them shaped your core values and your belief systems and especially in those developmental ages. And so it is working through that, understanding the addiction. Again, no, no contact with the outside world. So there's no phone, no movies, no, uh, even the books that we had could only be meditation books. And so it's very much a, a time and a space where you're not allowed to be distracted from anything other than focusing on getting better. Also, side note, the you think 1985 is old is very amusing to me because Curtis and I both pre, both uh, predate that. 
Oh, well, uh, take back what I said then. Uh, You're saying we're old? Oh, God, Curtis, I've wasted my entire life. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking uh, about the, uh, the book in terms of um, the experiences that you've gone through with addiction and abuse. Um, was it hard or healing the way that you included these? It's actually a very difficult uh, process. The writing process was hard because it is something that you're doing in such vivid description. And I don't want to sugarcoat that for anyone who especially aims to write a memoir or a memoir or a book dealing with their own trauma history or addiction recovery. Because when you go back to those experiences, a lot of times your 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 body doesn't know as you're writing those things and you're forcing yourself to relive them mentally your body doesn't know that you're not back in that time period uh it has the same feelings the same sensations and you're having to write especially in the literary world you're having to write such so vividly with the scents and sounds and sights of that time period so you're very much back into it and and i would say that that's the hardest part about Uh, choosing to write about trauma. So to make sure if anyone is considering doing that, that they've, they've got a good support system, that they've got mental health care support, uh, a care provider, a counselor, someone that, that they can lean on during that writing process, because it can unlock a lot of, a lot of things that we don't talk about in our day-to-day, you know, lives. Most people don't want to go back to that time. And here we are using a crowbar to open it up and write it down on a page. Yeah, a lot of people go through um, mental blocking and out or, you know, that, that suppression, probably the better term I'm looking there for it. When all this started, uh, as far as the writing process, um, when that began, what were there any like different versions or different iterations of uh, the stories? There was. Uh, I had a different name for the book. Uh, I actually had started the book in chronological order. And as I was working through it and I was writing it, I became the person that said, I don't care, you know, that this was me at the third grade. Like I, what, what is the, what is the through point for this book? And again, it was to show what happens to a girl, particularly when she develops the core belief that she exists for the gratification of other people. And so how did I put that onto the page? And so that's where that back and forth of present day adult dealing with these unhealthy coping mechanisms and addictions, going back to that childhood event and showing what that child was going through, then going back to the adult and showing again that manifestation of it. So that was something that was um, very important for me to, to once I got that grasp of it, that's where the iteration of the book took off. And I was able to to get the publishing deal based off of that version. I like to ask about the different names because I imagine as a reporter, you've got to take your article and sum the whole thing up in, say, six or seven words. That's hard. A 400-page book, that's way harder. What were some of the different names you went with and how did the return trip be the one that made you say, okay, that's the one we're going with? Initially, the book, there's a, without spoiling it, there is a, a moment that deals with a, a, a barbecue uh, joint sign. So that was the initial name of the book was Barbecue Joint Signs. And then somebody told me that they thought it was going to be a memoir about me going to visit all the different barbecue joints in Texas and eat, <laughs> eating barbecue. So 
uh, that wasn't going to work because that wouldn't necessarily be a book that people would pick up uh, or uh, have the synopsis that they expected from it. Then there was a version where it was called That Kind of Girl because I just felt like I was that kind of girl that, it, that these things kept happening to. And I felt that that was a little generic and broad. And I was actually working with an editor who, uh, a developmental editor at one point, and I had a line in the book that said specifically this return trip. And she highlighted it and said, consider this. And I wasn't really sure what she meant. Her name's Mag Gabbert. She's a talented poet. When I realized what it was that she was saying, consider this as the title, uh, that's how it became The Return Trip. Always work with an editor. I will say that to every writer out there, if you don't think you need one, you're wrong. And also poets. Poets are great at brevity. They're so great at brevity. Yeah, they have to be. Working with this editor, did, did, did they really help to shape the book or is it more of a refining of it? It was more of the fine tuning. It was uh, sort of that movement from autobiographical to the memoir format, where it was more of the creative nonfiction versus, again, that autobiography of a consistent chronological timeline. And I was able to really take a bat to that and start to play with that and have uh, more fun in the writing process, even though this is a heavy topic. But it freed me up to be able to say, okay. If I'm getting bored and feel like this book is getting stagnant, what what would keep me turning the pages? And that's really where that idea came from. And so she helps me navigate away from the autobiographical format and really start to think about different perspectives. And I had that light bulb moment and basically ran to her and said, what if I did this? And she gave me the thumbs up. Excellent. Excellent. What do you hope people take from this reading experience? Is there one singular message? There are several messages. One, I really want there to to be for other survivors of not just childhood sexual abuse, but any trauma that we're more than what happened to us at any point in time, whether we're, we're kids or whether we've been through things that were horrific as adults. I just want there to be a feeling and a sense of hope that they're not, I don't want to sound cliche, but they're really truly not alone, that there are people that are going through these experiences every single day and that we've developed unhealthy coping mechanisms and we're just doing the best that we can. We wear so many hats in this day and age um, as seen in the book. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I was a journalist. You know, I run now I run a nonprofit organization. All of those different hats can at any time be a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think if we can give readers hope, but also grace to say life can be a lot at times. And I think that that is the biggest takeaway that I want someone to pick this book up and know it's not just a sad girl story, that there's some levity in there, but also that there's a a takeaway of hope. I'd like to ask that about your own life as you were going through what you went through. How did you find hope? Honestly, humor has always been my my saving grace, true, truthfully. Um, I was always the girl cracking jokes, uh, and, and it might have been a coping device and a way to make friends, but I, I really felt like uh, laughter was a, was, a, was a great way to give that joy to other people, and then seeing other people react and laugh made me happy. And uh, I read a quote once from uh, Robin Williams, who um, obviously one of the great 
comedians of all time and and who struggled uh, with mental health. But basically, the the summary of it was that people who have been through trauma tend to want to make other people laugh because they don't want anyone else to feel sad in the way that they felt. That was such a that's a, a a summation of what he said. It was much more powerful than that, but. I felt that so deeply the first time that I heard that. And, you know, in school, I was voted wittiest girl and all of those, you know, types of things. And at the time, they're they're meaningful to you because you're in school. But looking back, I realized that that was my way of that was my way of dealing with it was to just laugh and to have fun and to try to try to bring humor to the lives of other people. And that's what gave me that's what gave me happiness. I like that. I like that. Also, choosing to work in journalism is always a good place for humor because we are always, always making jokes. It's it's you know, you deal with such journalism, you can sometimes see the 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 worst of humanity and the best of humanity. So you have to find a happy medium and and humor is the way through it. Exactly, exactly. Now, I also understand from reading the description of the book that there was something else that helped you as well. These were three divine experiences, three divine interventions. Could you tell us a bit about these and how did they help you? The the first is actually in the first chapter of the book, and it was quite literally a sign at that moment. And just a, a content warning for your for your listeners and viewers is that I I was suicidal. Um, I had a suicide plan in place, and I was very set on taking my life in that moment. And it was an actual sign that I saw that had some words on it that ended up being the reason that I did not that day. Whether I saw that sign or whether I was dissociating and I believe I saw that sign, at any rate, it happened. And I'm here talking to you both right now. There's another moment in the book where I, and this happened when I was at Shades of Hope in treatment, where I felt a calling and I felt I had a lot of symptoms with my mental illness, but uh, hallucinating was not one of them. And I felt that I had this presence or a voice telling me that I had an assignment, basically, and it was to start the nonprofit organization where we're working with other survivors. I think all of those moments have culminated into really being part of the rest of my life's mission to write the book, to start the nonprofit organization and to work with other survivors and their families. Why do you refer to these as divine interventions? Why you call them that as opposed to just moments? I just felt like there was something far greater than, you know, coincidence at play. And I felt like it was in a lot of ways, validation from the universe, whether you, you know, have faith, whatever you believe or don't believe. I felt like in my life that those were moments where something much larger than me or my family or loved ones, no one else could get through to me. And so it was something obviously that I believe was divine that 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 really did step in to save my life and say, it's not your time just yet. This question, I hope, is not going too personal, but I am curious as to your own your own faith. How does that kind of. I guess, kind of factor into your interpretation of these different events? Well, that's something that actually is explored in the book. And I've struggled with faith, uh, I think, as a lot of survivors of traumas uh, do. I I really questioned, and, and I'm I'm very honest in the book about this as well, I've, I've, I question greatly 
why things happen, especially to children. You know, if if I'm I'm from the South, I'm from Texas, I'm born and raised in the Bible Belt. So church on Sundays and, you know, you pray and say your prayers at night and be a good girl and, you know, your life will be okay. And I was doing those things, but yet I was being abused. So I really questioned what type of a God allowed those things to happen because I was being taught that I was supposed to be protected. And so I've struggled a lot with that as a survivor and still, I don't think my life will ever get a satisfying answer for that. Why do those things happen to children? Why do good things happen to, or why do bad things happen to good people? I think that's just a a question all of us have in in human existence. And uh, for me, I think that that's something that I felt like this book gave me the creative outlet to be able to say that and explore that because I didn't have that freedom to express that growing up in, in a Baptist household. Let's kind of turn the, the tide on, on what we've been talking about and let's kind of focus a little bit more on the more uh, publishing side of things here with the book, right? Because a lot of our listeners, readers, especially those that are aspiring writers or folks that are, you know, written maybe a few stories here and there, um, kind of get interested in these sort of things too. So um, working with rising action, action ah, I can't speak today. Ah, nice work. Okay. Working with rising action publishing collective there. I got it. How did that come to be? It's, it was a difficult, you know, writing a memoir is, is hard. There's a lot of stories out there. There's a lot of uh, stories about trauma and addiction and overcoming and, I actually had gone to a writing conference and I heard someone speak and say, it was an editor from another publishing house that said, books that deal with trauma and addiction and overcoming need to have an element of transformation in those stories. We need to see you as the storyteller overcoming and essentially being the hero of the story if you if you compare it to, to fiction. But also... I had learned about rising action through uh, some literary connections that I had. And I had heard uh, Alexandria Brown, who is the uh, acquisitions editor for them. I had heard her speak and just kind of put them away in the in my back of my mind. And I'll be quite honest, I, I you know, the publishing world is hard and coming from journalism. I don't think I expected that to be quite as difficult foolishly. Uh, but I learned very quickly that this was not going to be as simple as sitting down at a computer and typing and, oh, this book is going to get picked up. I was probably about 12 to 15 query submissions to editors, agents, independent publishing houses in and had actually built a relationship with uh, an agent that over time, I just felt like this was going to be the best fit. And then I sent some sample chapters and she said, it just didn't hit me the way that I thought it would. And so I curled in a fetal position and cried for about two hours, not even not even exaggerating. And I I just uh, basically was determined that weekend to feel sorry for myself. And that's not me. So uh, especially if you read the book, you'll find out very quickly that that's not me. So the next day, as a matter of fact, I queried uh, rising action because I had remembered them. And I went back and I looked at Alex's manuscript wish list and that she was open to memoirs. And I kid you not, I sent it to them. And within an hour and a half, I had a reply back saying, 
we've read it. Our assistant read your sample. Can you send us more pages? And then by the end of the week, they were asking me to do a call. And after we hung up the call, they sent the offer. It's very much, I want to say, the encouragement to aspiring and emerging writers because publishing is an industry that is designed for rejection. It just is. And you you hear it all the time, persevere, keep pushing until you get that yes. It's hard. It's very hard, especially if you're writing memoir, because they tell you not to take it personally, but it's your personal story. So you're going to take it personally. And I struggled with that. But again, you do, you have to persevere and keep pushing. And sometimes it's just finding the right fit. And Rising Action told me from the start, they believed in the story, they believed in working with survivors, and they believed in women's stories. And that was what I needed to hear to want to sign with them. Nice. Yeah. It's always, uh, it's always good. You, you, I always heard the, uh, from my folks growing up, you know, keep, keep, keep knocking on those doors until someone finally opens it and says, yes. Right. Oh, so, oh yeah. Know. That, that's actually how, how, how I got my start in journalism was, was basically pestering the editor in chief of the local paper until they finally gave me a freelance position just to shut me up. <laughs> Literally calling every other day saying, what do you got for me? What do you got for me? What do you got for me? That's just it. That's just it. Uh, you've also had a lengthy career as a sports journalist. Um, how did that experience help you uh, as a writer? I think if it goes back to talking about that perseverance, I think definitely being a woman in sports, uh, absolutely. Because the odds sometimes can feel like they're stacked against you. I am in a part of East Texas, and it's a bit of a rural area. Uh, It's still city enough, but uh, most of the counties and the surrounding areas are small towns. Friday Night Lights here is the real deal. And people here, the whole town shut down on Friday nights to go to the games. And here I was uh, 24 years old at the time, and I became the first female sports director in this area, in this market's history in television. And so I had to learn very quickly that what it means to keep pushing, what it means to, as you said, keep knocking on those doors, to stand tall, to stand confidently, to be able to walk in and talk to these coaches that were not accustomed to seeing someone that looked like me walk into their locker rooms and their field houses uh, to talk to them and their players. And so it definitely taught me perseverance. Uh, It also taught me that there are highs and lows, just like when you're watching a game. Uh, You know, there are times where it feels like, you know, there's not going to be any movement or traction and maybe this just isn't your day or this isn't your night and then something can turn around um, in an instant. And that's that was my publishing journey. So, uh, you know, not to be a sports metaphor, but it's very, it, it felt like a game. It felt like being in a game. And uh, I was down in the first half, but, you know, came back in the second half. So I, I really enjoyed what I've learned about publishing. And, and even if it was difficult at times, it's taught me a lot about perseverance. Along with working with an editor, you're also very active within your own uh, within your own writers community. Uh, you're a part of the uh, Writers League of Texas, the Women's Fiction Writers Association, hashtag Writer Hive, and you attend events run by the Writing Workshops Dallas. But how did all this kind of help you? Whether it was with like the writing process or when the time came to start like pitching this, all of the above. Uh, I. Even though I had been in journalism, I knew nothing about publishing. I knew nothing about how to query. 
I I didn't know that I didn't even know what a query was. You know, it was just that was my level of knowledge because I had been so deep in my journalism career that even pitching things was somewhat foreign to me because I could just really say, hey, this is an idea I had for a story and they would they would go with it. And then I got introduced to saying, well, hey, I want to write a book and I want to put this book together. And then it was, well, you need to get an agent and you need to query and you have to query to get an agent. And, oh, you're, you're going to have to query a lot to get an agent's attention. And sometimes you don't hear from them for four weeks and then sometimes you never hear from them. And so it was because of that writing community uh, that I was able to learn the ropes about publishing and writing workshops. Honestly, March 2020 was when I really, truly began looking at writing a, no a, a novel. And I don't know if you remember what was happening in the world in March of 2020, but there, there was a, there was a yeah, there was a virus, I think, or a bug or something happened. Uh, I don't really remember, actually. It's all kind of a blur. Yes. Well, during that time, there was a lot of time spent at home and <laughs> I became familiar with writing workshops and they actually had a class on memoirs and how to query. And that was step one. And through them, I learned that the more connections you had in the writing community, how important and invaluable it is. So finding a writing group, finding beta readers to look over your work, uh, all of that was important in terms that were not part of my vernacular before that. So I became active in that for, for that sole reason. And I believe that any writer that wants to be successful, you have to build that community. You have to be able to have people that understand the journey because it's very hard to explain to people who aren't writers hey I, I sent this query out and i'm feeling really sad uh that i got rejected today they might not understand that but you say that to another writer and it's like oh that's the worst and they get it do you have the rejection letters paper like on your wall i do not i have a i have an archived folder i will <laughs> say though people either take it like it just like cripples them or they're like you know what it's going on the wall. I'm framing this thing. Remind myself to keep on going. I actually did that in my journalism career when I was first trying to get in the door for sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most most sports departments around the country, I don't know if people are really aware of this, but most sports departments in local news are two people jobs. It's, you know, there's a there's a weekend person and then there's a sports director and that's about it. So when you're vying for these jobs, you're competing against a, a pool of hundreds and it mm -hmm. can be hard to stand out. So right out of college, I got 62 rejections and I kept every letter uh, when I was sending out. This was olden times, kiddo. So I was sending out VHS tapes uh, for my resume reel, uh, going to the going to the, the post office. They knew me well there to send out more tapes. And then I, I got I have a shoebox still full of all of those rejection letters. And uh, it's kind of nice sometimes to look back and realize how far I came from that moment. I think one of my best rejections, and I don't know why I even bother trying in the first place, but I actually applied to the Boston Globe, um, which, you know, of course, in mass is like the biggest paper around, basically. And I was like fresh out of college, barely any experience. And hindsight, like, what the hell were they thinking applying to these guys? Like, I was nowhere near, like, even now as I am, probably nowhere near the experience they want. But even so, I was like, you know what? I went and tried. I gave them my stuff. They obviously said no. But I was like, yeah, you know what? I gave it a shot. And I'm proud that I at least made the effort. That's right. You at least tried. And that's that's the same 
same effort that writers have to approach mm -hmm. with the publishing industry. Your manuscript that you know is untouched or no one's seen or it's dusty somewhere in a in a cellar or a basement somewhere, you have to send it out. You have to try. Exactly. Exactly. It's best. It's best to aim and shoot for the moon and miss than to hit the curb. I like that. I like that too. All right. Uh, I, I forget who said that. That wasn't mine. Awesome, fantastic. It's mine now. But uh, okay, that's great. So while we're on the while we're kind of on the topic of that, though, I, I'm just curious. Um, do you have a favorite or um, most liked, I guess, affirmation? Oh, that is a good question. I think probably the affirmation that I liked. I like that I I have some. I have ten that I say or try to say every day. Um, but one that I. I try to focus on is I let go of any negativity or anxiety, uh, which from day to day, we'll see how that goes, but at least I've said it and at least I'm trying. So I think that, uh, that's a, that's a good affirmation to, to try to have is things happen. Life happens. Sometimes it's bad, but you have to let go of it. And, you know, well, I, 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 I forget where it comes from, but what's that saying, you know, don't worry about, Tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Uh, that's sort of the same thing with the anxiety as well. So probably that's more of an affirmation than than the other. I like that. I really like that. All right. So uh, we, we mentioned earlier that along with the other things you do, of course, as a journalist and now a novelist, you're also a public speaker. And as you mentioned, the founder of the One in Three Foundation. Does the work you do with the book kind of tie into these two things as well? Yes, uh, the 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 book I really feel is an extension of working with survivors, and I don't think that I would have been in a position to want to write the book if I had not already been sharing my story publicly. If I had not already been talking with people and talking before uh, our own foundation support groups or at community events with you know the crisis centers or local agencies that are response agencies for sexual assault and being able to stand up there and speak as a survivor and really no, no other title. You know, it's not about being a journalist when I'm up there. It's about sharing my experience and how it impacted me and doing so in a way that raises awareness for care providers or law enforcement or any other groups. And I think that because I was able to do that, I was able to write this book and was able to be able to put into it so much uh, vulnerability and earnestness into the story. All right, folks. Well, we are coming down to the end of the conversation, but we have the one last question, one big question. And Curtis, take it away. Uh, you have a book, an another book coming out called The Senator, uh, which is a fiction book set to, uh, for, I believe, at the spring 2025 release. Is there anything you might be able to tell us about that? A little, full, you know, sneak peek? I'm very excited about the Senator one because it's fiction. So I'm getting to wait, move away from uh, a little bit of the creative nonfiction, which has been my primary focus. Uh, it is a political thriller. I very much grew up a fan of uh, the John Grisham books of the 90s and the big, uh, you know, the movies, the blockbusters, but also the books and was always inspired to want to write that type of, of book. And the lead character is a journalist. So you write what you know in some cases. Uh, but it's uh, it's one that I'm very excited to to put out into the world, partly because it's fiction, but also I think it has a lot of twists and turns that 
people will be excited to follow. So I'm looking forward to that. It'll be out in April of 2025. Hmm. Going from nonfiction to fiction, so anything goes basically, what would you say was the biggest, uh, I don't want to say challenge, but the the best new experience? I think it, it was freeing to be able to say the research aspect of it was, was different. Uh, the research aspect of being able to... Um, have fun with some topics that, you know, I was looking at descriptions and world building and, and places or college campuses, uh, just where part of the book takes place. And just being able to look at, look into that and research and look at pictures and have fun with that and, and developing the characters. Whereas with a memoir, you, I know like the characters that are in this memoir. I know the people that they're based on. There's not a lot of freedom with their personalities because, you want to remain true to the experiences and you want it to be authentic. But with fiction, as you said, you know, these characters can be as far out or as wild and as colorful as I want them to be or as subdued. And that's where the fun is. That's where, you know, creative nonfiction is great, but creative, create, creating worlds and building worlds and character development. I quickly fell in love with that. So I, I, I love this process of, of having a creative nonfiction work, but also a fiction piece. And are you in the book at all? I am not in the book, but I will say that there are experiences that I drew from as a journalist that made it into the protagonist's experiences. So, uh, again, you write what you know sometimes, and and I was able to uh, to use her uh, career to 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 pinpoint a few moments that I experienced in my own. All right, all right. Well, folks, we are coming down to the end of the conversation, Curtis. Man, of course, always great talking to you. Always great having you here. And Maya, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a real, real pleasure to learn all about your story and about this book, which again, folks, is coming out November 14th through Rising Action Publishing Collective. That's a great name, by the way, for a publishing company. I want to say great name. You can find out a lot more at, and this is this is fun to say, goodisgolden.com. That's the website. Everything is there. That's a perfect website name, actually. Thank you. Yeah. Very excited to have that one. Yeah. And, uh, well, Maya, thanks again. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking really soon. I appreciate you. And thank you, Max and Curtis, for having me on. Thank you. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening. And be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. And new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now. And I'll see you next time.